Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them. Or if you're new school and you got a device, turn on Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. And let's stand for the reading of the word. <coughs> Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, in the one, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. I want to do a little, little poll, a little survey, and you can respond just by uh, raising your hand uh, to these questions. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever seen a sheep bark? Uh, okay, let's try that. How many of you have ever seen a dog meow? Uh, let's try another one. Um, how many of you have ever heard a bird chirp or sing? Okay, all right, all of us. I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but the reason that we don't hear sheep bark and the reason we don't hear dogs meow and the reason we hear birds chirp is because sheep do sheep things. Dogs do dog things. And birds do bird things. Why? Because that's who they are, right? So Paul starts chapter 12 with an appeal. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. That's a massive statement that reaches all the way back to everything that Paul has said in Romans thus far. It's a massive statement. Therefore, he's laid out his theology. 
for our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now he's beginning to tell us what this transformed life by the mercies of God is like. And he's literally begging, pleading with us to live into and live out this transformed life that we have. That's what chapter 12 is all about. Now, I think there's two ways to read chapter 12, or there's two ways in which it can be read, and one of them's wrong and one of them's right. And just to save you the suspense, I'm going to tell you which one I think is right and which one I think is wrong, okay? We have to be careful with this because I think, typically speaking, Christians tend to read Romans 12 the wrong way. Here's what I mean by that. Here's one way to read Romans 12. What Paul is after. In light of the mercies of God and all that God has done for us in Christ, here is a long list, Christians, of things you need to do in order to have a transformed life. All right, that's number one. Here's number two. Option is a way to read Romans 12. In light of the mercies of God and all that God has done for us in Christ, there is one thing you need to do in order to live out and experience fully, enjoy fully the transformed life that you already have. I think there's one fundamental instruction in Romans 12. Just one. It takes Paul three verses, one to three, to sort of lay it out, but I think it's fundamentally one instruction. And the rest of Romans chapter 12 is descriptive, it's not instructional. He's picturing for us what this transformed life that we already have is supposed to look like. And there's one instruction that takes three verses that if we heed it, if we obey it, if we lean into it, this is the kind of life, rest of chapter 12, that we're going to experience, okay? Now, I said that the one instruction takes three verses for him to lay out, but I think the essence of it, the essence of it is in verse 2. So let's start right there. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? Here's the essence of the instruction. Don't be conformed, be transformed. I want you to repeat that after me. Don't be conformed, be transformed. All right? So don't be conformed. That phrase in the Greek, it pictures a person masquerading as someone that they're not. That's literally what that pictures. Don't masquerade Christians as something that you are not. Remember, Paul is writing to saved people. And we understand from Paul's gospel that saved people are transformed people, not by works, not by our own efforts, but by the mercies of God shown to us in Christ. So here, here's what Paul's saying. Don't assume, Christians, saved people, transformed people, an outward expression of your life that is patterned after this world and is no longer consistent with the inward transformation that has already occurred in you. I need to say it again. 
Don't assume Christians saved people. An outward expression of your life that is patterned after this world and is no longer consistent with the inward transformation that has already occurred in you. Simply put, by the renewal of your mind, be the transformed person you are. By the renewal of your mind, live outwardly the kind of life that you now have inwardly. So the question is, how do we have a renewed mind? Did you know that Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said that he thought every Christian, fasten your seatbelts, he thought every Christian should memorize the entire book of Romans. <laughs> we don't do memory very well anymore, do we? We've got too much Google and too much just pop it up and search it and find it and look it up. And I'm as guilty as anybody. I, forever I'm telling Mary, there's a verse and I know it says this, but I can't find it. And I Google it. <laughs> and those of you that know Brian Alkin, who is a pastor and mentor to me, he gets all over my case about doing that. Okay. But Martin Luther thought every Christian should memorize the entire book of Romans. And there's no biblical command to do that, but why would he think that? It's because the renewal of the mind only comes one way, by our constant and consistent meditation on the Word of God. When we're not living out the transform, outwardly, the transformed life that we now have inwardly, do you know what the problem is? It's not a problem in terms of a lack of transformation, it's a gospel problem. We've got a head problem. We're, our thinking has not come in line with the new spiritual reality that God has brought about in us through Christ, by grace, through faith. Is that not what he says? So how do we have a renewed mind? We meditate, we constantly rehearse the gospel. That's why we talk about that all the time. It's kind of like the command that Paul gave back in chapter 6. Remember when he said, Christians, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I don't kill the sin in me in my own strength. I don't make myself alive to God in Christ by my own efforts. God does that by his spirit through Christ. Right? So what is Paul's instruction to me? Reckon yourself. Think the way that you are. Bring your thinking in line with the new spiritual reality that God has brought about in Christ through continual, constant meditation on the Word of God. And I think Paul specifically has in mind when he says renewal of the mind, he's talking about everything that he has said, the theological framework that he has laid out in 11 chapters of Romans. Be transformed by all of that. Let your mind be renovated and renewed by all of that. And in so doing, don't be conformed. Don't masquerade as something you're not. Be the transformed person that you are. And here's where that leads. Verse 2 again. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know what one of the benefits of the renewed mind is? 
when, I, when my mind is renewed by the gospel, by the word of God, I not only learn and become more familiar with God's will, but I actually want it. That's what Paul's saying there. The word of God, when my mind is renewed, all right, God does the inward work. The word of God, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, renews my mind and brings my thinking in line with all that God has done. I not only understand it, but I want it. The will of God becomes good to me. It becomes acceptable to me. The word of God, the will of God, is good, acceptable, and perfect regardless of whether or not I know it or accept it. Right? But with a renewed mind, it actually becomes good. It becomes acceptable and it becomes perfect to me so that I not only know it, but I want it. So that's the essence of the instruction. Let's say it again. Don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Okay? Now, there's more to it, but it's still one instruction. Let's go back to verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I read that verse, and I just started to think about how much time, energy, and effort we spend on trying to make our bodies look good. And some of you spend more time than others. But on some level, that's what we all do, right? Did you know there was a time in my life when I had hair? I was born bald, and I will die bald, but there was a season of my life when I had hair. And it was thin, wiry, and wavy. And I would spend exorbitant amounts of time, ridiculous amounts of time, particularly in high school, trying to make it look good all to no avail. I really hated my hair. And then at some point it dawned on me, and I think somewhere around my freshman year of college, that I got male baldness on both sides of my family. And there were already signs that that's where I was headed. So I just helped it on out the door. And oh, the freedom. I haven't owned a hairbrush since 1995, and I'm not exaggerating. But I don't have to worry about it anymore. I wake up and I roll, at least from a hair standpoint. Just a little funny to keep your attention, okay? When Paul says present your bodies, he is talking about our external physical being. He's talking about our hands. He's talking about our feet. He's talking about our mouths. He's talking about our tongues. Our bodies matter. Why? Because our bodies are the things that God has given us to act in the world. And so what Paul says, don't be conformed. Be, transform people that you are by the renewal of your mind. And I think the presentation of our bodies is the outgrowth of that. Instead of being like the world, using my body for all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness and whatever, I show up with my body in my world and I worship. 
I show up with my hands, my feet, my arms, my legs, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, and I worship Jesus. I make Jesus look awesome in my world by the way I use my body. When Paul says holy and acceptable, he's not saying that our bodies become holy and acceptable by what we do. He says you're already holy and acceptable bodies because of the mercies of God. Show up with them in your world and worship. I, I I'm, was meeting with a husband recently. A husband that I believe has a genuine desire to love his wife and his children, his family well, in honor of Christ. I, I, I think that desire is so evident and so genuine in him. But we've been working through some things, and he's struggling a little bit to, to do that well and to learn how to do that better. And so I spent some time with him, and we walked through some very practical things, some changes in his life rhythm, changes in his pattern and the way he does things typically in his marriage or with his children at home. We went through all of that, and I could see on his face a heaviness, an uncertainty about whether or not he could do that. And you know what I said to him? I looked at him. I said, brother, just think of it this simply. When you get home at the end of the day, you get yourself out of your truck. You walk in that door and worship. Walk in that door, see your children, and worship Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about, at least in that moment, with hands lifted or singing a song. No, I'm talking about in the way you love them, the way you use your hands, your feet, your mouth, your mind, in your home, with your family. Let it be a presentation of your whole self to Jesus in worship. And tears came to his eyes, and suddenly, I think he got it. Christians, get the sleep you need, eat the right foods, take care of yourself, exercise, right? Avoid too much media. Keep your minds clean, guard your heart, do all of those things so that you can show up in your world with your body, with a renewed mind, and be the transformed person that you are. And that is your spiritual act of worship. Make your body say, God is my treasure. Boy, if we got that right, we'd start winning a lot more sin battles, wouldn't we? Don't be conformed. Be transformed. As, as transformed people who are bringing our thinking in line with what God has done by his mercies... Paul says, think with sober judgment about yourself according to the measure of faith God has given you. Let's read it, verse 3 again. I still think, this is all part of that one fundamental instruction. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has a sign. Now, he is talking about humility here, but not in a generic sense. This is very specific. And, and here's the simplest way I could restate this verse. With a renewed mind comes an awareness that my life is now part of something great. 
I think that's what the sober-mindedness according to the measure. Everybody say measure. Measure of faith God has assigned. Think of it like this. Are we saved individually? It's not a trick question. By grace through faith, we personally experience the mercy of God. And we are personally, individually born again to a living hope. God gives us his spirit. We're a new creation in Christ. That happens individually, right? And you might think, because we're saved individually, that God would give each one of us individually all of the faith that we need to live out our transformed life. But let's ask the question. Are we saved individually? Yes. But are we saved individually to live out our salvation individualistically? No, we're not. We've been given a measure of faith. Which means what? It means I'm saved individually to be part of something corporately. I'm a part of something. And that something is the body of Christ. Saved life is a body life. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Recognize, rather, you've been given a measure of faith. And that when we see that, when our minds are renewed, we're not conformed to the pattern of this world, but our minds are renewed and we begin to live out the transformed life that we now have in Christ. We present our bodies for worship and we recognize I'm a part of something. I'm a part of a whole. And Paul begins to describe that. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I don't think these are a set of instructions. I think this is a description. When our minds are renewed, we're not conformed, we we be the transformed people that we are. We present our bodies in worship. And that spills over into this body life that God has called us into. All right? There's a very real sense, just like he calls for our natural bodies to be presented to God in worship, there's a very real sense in which we not only present ourselves to God, but to one another. And oh, do we need our minds renewed right here? I want to read you a story. Okay? Story time. And this story, it comes out of a book by a doctor, a neurologist named Oliver Sacks. He's pretty famous. He's dead now. I think there was actually a movie made about his life called Awakenings. I haven't seen it, but I heard it's really good. Um, but this book is titled, um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And other clinical tales. He's a neurologist, so you can kind of maybe see where that's going. And this is just a collection of stories from his medical practice. And so this is one story he tells. This is called, The Man Who Fell Out of Bed. Keep in mind, we're talking about a saved life being a body life. You with me? Listen to this. 
Sachs Rison says, when I was a medical student many years ago, one of the nurses called me in considerable perplexity and gave me the singular story on the phone. They had a new patient, a young man, just admitted that morning. He seemed very nice, very normal, all day indeed, until a few minutes before when he awoke from a snooze. He seemed excited and strange, not himself in the least. He had somehow contrived to fall out of bed and was now sitting on the floor, carrying on loud shouting and, ref and refusing to get back in the bed. Could I come, please, the nurse said, and sort out what was happening. So when I arrived, I found the patient lying on the floor by his bed and staring at one leg. His expression contained anger and alarm and bewilderment and amusement, but bewilderment most of all with a hint of consternation. And I asked him if he would get back in the bed or if he needed help, but he seemed upset by these suggestions and shook his head. I squatted down beside him and took the history on the floor. He had come in that morning for some tests, he said. He had no complaints, but the neurologist, feeling that he had a lazy leg, lazy left leg, that that, that, that was the very word that he used, thought he should come in and be checked. When he awoke, when he woke up, he felt fine too until he moved in the bed and then he found, as he put it, someone else's leg in the bed. Someone else's leg. A severed human leg, he said, a horrible thing. He was stunned at first with amazement and disgust. He had never experienced, never imagined such an incredible thing. He felt the leg gingerly. It seemed perfectly formed but peculiar and cold. At this point, he had a brainwave. He now realized what had happened. This was all a joke. It was New Year's Eve. All the staff and the nurses were, were drunk and full and chipper. So someone has played a joke on me, he said. Obviously, one of the nurses with a warped sense of humor had stolen into the dissecting room and nabbed a leg and then slipped it under his bedclothes as a joke while he was still fast asleep. He was much relieved at the explanation, but feeling that the joke was a joke and that this was one that was a bit much, he threw the horrible leg out of the bed. But at this point, in his conversational manner deserted him, he suddenly trembled and became ashen pale because when he threw it out of the bed, he somehow came after it. And now it was attached to him. Look at it, he cried with revulsion on his face. Have you ever seen such a creepy, horrible thing? I thought a cadaver was just a dead leg, but this is uncanny, and somehow it's ghastly. It seems stuck to me. He seized it with both hands with extraordinary, extraordinary violence and tried to tear it off his body, and failing, he punched at it in excess. Easy, I said. Be calm. Take it easy. I wouldn't punch that leg if I were you. Why not, he asked. Because it's your leg. Do you not know your own leg? He gazed at me with a look compounded of stupefaction, terror, and amusement, not unmixed with a jocular sort of suspicion. Ah, Doc, you're fooling me. You're in on the joke, too. You shouldn't kid your patients like this. I'm not kidding, he said. That's your leg. He saw from my face that I was perfectly serious, and a look of utter terror came over him. You say it's my leg, Doc. Wouldn't you say that a man should know his own leg? Absolutely, I answered. 
you should know your own leg. I cannot imagine a person not knowing their own leg. Maybe you're the one who's been kidding all along. I swear, Doc, across my heart, I haven't. A man should know his own body, what's his and what's not. But this leg, this thing, another shudder of distaste came across his face, does not feel right, doesn't feel real, and it doesn't look part of me. Listen, I said, I don't think you're well. Please allow me to return you to bed. But before you do, I want to ask you one final question. If this, this thing is not your left leg, then where is your left leg? And once more he became pale, so pale I thought he might faint. I don't know, he said. I have no idea. It's disappeared. It's gone. Now we hear a story like that, and what do we think? This guy's crazy. He's taking leave of his senses. He's lost touch with reality. When it comes to our transformed life, our saved life being a body life, I wonder if we've lost touch with reality. And we don't have a neurological problem. We have a gospel problem. I'm saved and you're saved into a new life in Christ and that happens individually but when Jesus gathers people to himself he also gathers them to each other in such a close and intimate way that when I come to a place like this with brothers and sisters in Christ there is a very real not ethereal not metaphorical but there's a very real sense in which my life is connected to you and you are connected to me and I wonder if sometimes we don't treat each other like this man treated his lazy left leg. It seems foreign to us. We try to throw it out of the bed and whoops, we go with it sometimes. <laughs> Paul isn't attempting to be exhaustive here. He's just describing the various ways in which we contribute to this shared life some will serve some will teach some will lead some will be generous some will do acts of mercy some will prophesy he's not trying to give a theological framework for spiritual giftedness in the body of Christ he's just giving us examples if you want a theological framework for spiritual giftedness in the church Go to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Here, Paul's just giving us examples that if our minds are renewed, if our thinking comes in line with the reality of what God has done in us, in Christ, then what that's going to spill over to is a shared life with one another where the measure of faith that I have and you have comes together in this beautiful way in order to make much of Jesus and spread his fame around the world. And he keeps going. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now check this out. Every English translation we have renders all those statements in a way that they sound like instructions, but in the Greek, this is literally how it reads. Renewed mind, don't be conformed, be transformed. We are members one of another, each having a gift, each having a measure of faith, and then it reads this way, verse 9, genuine love, period. Abhorring evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. It's just, it's descriptive. This is what we do. Sheep go ba-ba. Dogs go woof-woof. Birds go chirp-chirp. And Christians love one another. Not just with a, I love you in the Lord, sister. but with brotherly affection. That kind of affection and that kind of love and that kind of closeness that you feel with your family, that even when they get on your last nerve, when they call you in the middle of the night, you show up. When they're sick, you bring a cold rag to their forehead. Why? Because it's family. Because they're a part of you. They're blood. Right? I look at my children and I see me in their faces. I see my wife in their faces. I see both of us in their mannerisms and their personalities and their, their little quirks and peccadilloes. Sometimes they grate on my nerves, but I love them in a way it's hard to describe, isn't it, parents? Because they're my blood. And do you realize that Paul is calling us to love each other that way? Doesn't matter how well you know each other. Doesn't matter how much you have in common. Do you know what you have in common fundamentally? Is this transformed life. That when our minds are renewed, we realize you're a part of me and I'm a part of you. And together we abhor evil. Together we are patient in tribulation. Together we outdo one another in showing honor. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's what the church does. And if we're not experiencing that, the corrective response is not to step back, zoom out, and go, well, I need to strive harder to love genuinely. I, I need to work harder to have brotherly affection for the person in my life group that I just cringe every time they open their mouth. <laughs> Must be a lot, <laughs> a lot of that going on there, Mary. <laughs> Woo! There might be another sermon series we need to work on there. That's not the corrective response. You know what the corrective response is? I mean, I need to get here. And I need my mind renewed. Because if I'm not experiencing that kind of life, I don't have a transformation problem. I have a gospel problem. 
My thinking has not come in line with the kind of life that God has now invited me into because of his mercy, right? So when, when our minds are renewed by the gospel, what comes is this discernment of the will of God and a desire for the will of God. When I talk about this shared body life, Christians, you know this to be true. There's something on the inside of you that goes, yeah, I want that. Yeah, sometimes it's hard, but I want that. There's a desire for that because you know by the spirit and the word that that is the will of God and you approve of it. It's acceptable to you. It's perfect to you. So the, the corrective response here is that if we're not sharing in that kind of life, we need, we need our minds renewed. But this is such a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the transformed life that we have. And oh, if we could just get our thinking in line with what God has done. And listen, Romans 1 to 11, Paul does such a wonderful job describing for us and laying down the theological framework for our understanding of salvation. And now he's starting to tell us, look, after unpacking all of that, this is the kind of life, Christians, that you're supposed to have. So I appeal to you, by the mercies of God, present yourselves. Don't be conformed. Be the transformed people that you are by the renewal of your mind. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Realize you have a measure of faith. You're members one of another you each have a gift. You each have a way to contribute. And as you do that, together, we will abhor evil. We will be constant in tribulation. We will love one another with brotherly affection. It's beautiful, isn't it? If, if you've ever been out of the country to a foreign nation where they don't speak English, you know what this is like, right? You're, you're walking down the street or you're in the airport and all around you is language that you can't understand, right? But then your ear catches someone speaking English, and you feel it, don't you? It rises up in you. I want to go talk to them. <laughs> they might be terrible people, but I hear something familiar, right? And you strike up a conversation. Where are you from? I'm from South Carolina. Where are you from? I'm from Michigan, and we start to talk about food, and we start to talk about football. We start to talk about home. Because though we live miles and miles and miles apart at home, we've now met in a place that feels foreign, but we're connected. Do you realize, look, we're going we're gonna to finish chapter 12 next week. We're going to back up and kind of talk more about the shared life that we have. We're going to unpack these verses a little bit more. And then Paul's got something to say to us about the way in which we, as the body of Christ, interact with the world outside the church. But do you realize that we are meant to have that same sort of feeling that I just described every day of our lives with each other? We're sojourners. This world's not our home. 
This, this, the, the way things are in the system and American politics and government and, and global issues, this is all temporary. But with you, Patrick, with you, Michael, with you, Heather, I share something eternal. I share that with you. Now, I want, I want to do something. I want you to, everyone to stand up as we close, okay? And I want you to, it's going to be a little awkward, hopefully not too awkward. But I want you to look around you. I mean, just kind of do like a 360. Just look around you. You don't have to say anything. Look at people's faces. Just look at them. Take it in. Don't think of the people that you just looked at. Like Oliver Zach's patient thought of his left leg. Don't, don't, don't think of it that way. Think of it like the person that you ran into in Mexico or France or Germany. And you heard them speak your language. And something, your heart just kind of did a backflip. Because there's somebody I'm connected to. And Christians, this is the kind of life that we get to live. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's easy. Because the world, listen... The world is pulling on our thinking. It's pulling so hard that even as I talk about this, as the word of God reveals this, you hear it and your soul starts to leap. But in your mind, you might be fighting it going, yeah, but that's just not realistic. It just doesn't seem practical, Bradley. What do we say all the time? If the word of God offends my sensibilities, I'm the problem, not the book. How much, how much of this life in Christ that you now have do you want to enjoy? How much? I got one all of it. And that's okay if you're not sure. It's okay because I realize that what we just read is so counter to how we, I think, our typical life rhythms right now, our typical way of thinking, that we might, maybe, you need to take the next six days and just meditate. Let Romans 12 wash over you. Stew on it. Don't come with preconceived notions. Let it offend your sensibilities. Let your mind be renewed. That's what you need to do. Don't, don't, don't try to develop a plan and a strategy and action steps where, I, okay, I'm going to go about this body life this way. No. Let your mind be renewed. And let the Lord do the work in you that's necessary and in your mind that's necessary to where you not only discern the will of God, but you actually approve of it. You want it. And you know what? If you want it, you'll go after it. 
You'll go after it no matter what the cost because it's good, acceptable, and perfect to you. Let's pray together. Lord, at this point in this letter that you inspired Paul to write, I find myself thinking about two things primarily. I think about think about the way in which my life was marred and twisted and perverted by sin and unrighteousness. And then I pause and I think about this beautiful, glorious work you have done by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. You've taken ugly and you've made it beautiful. And there's something in all of us that says, yes, that's beautiful and I want that, but sometimes it's hard for our thinking to come in line with the new spiritual reality that you've brought about. So as we worship right now and as we sing about how you have taken us sinners and made us into something beautiful, that Holy Spirit, you would renew our minds that we would stop masquerading as people that we're not. And we would start living out this transformation that you have brought about by your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.